It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. I hope you are still with me in the process of finding the children of atheism. In the book... Can man live without God? Ravi Zacharias says, There are three tests to which any system or statement that makes a claim to truth must be subjected as a preliminary requirement if that statement is to be considered meaningful for debate. Those tests are, one, logical consistency, two, empirical adequacy, and three, experiential relevance. In my words, the three tests are rational, factual, and livable. In the chapter on morality in the book Stealing from God, the author Frank Turek describes how a pedophile abducted a young daughter, raped, killed her, and hid her body. The pedophile later was caught and committed to life in prison. However, no justice has come in many similar cases. Turek pointed out that one three-year study of 562 child murders showed that 35% of them went unsolved. Turek writes, Imagine being the parent of a murdered child whose killer is still on the loose. Your horror is compounded by continued injustice. What if he is never caught? Many are never caught. If there is no God and no afterlife, then no justice will ever be done. Thousands of pedophiles who have committed murder over the years will never get justice. They will go to their graves unpunished. Turek reports in a debate with John Lennox that Richard Dawkins said, too bad. My goodness, how crass and uncaring can one person be? Dawkins continues, just because we wish there was ultimate justice doesn't mean there is. Turek answers, true. But if justice doesn't exist, then neither does injustice. After all, something can't be not right unless something really is right. If God doesn't exist and we're merely the mindless, purposeless products of biological evolution, then morality is subjective, which means that the rape and murder of your child isn't really unjust. If you think it is, then that's just your opinion. In a later paragraph, Turek says, so according to Richard Dawkins, rape isn't really wrong, and it's just arbitrary that you believe so. Say, 
that to anyone who has lost a little girl to rape and murder. Or let me ask you, Mr. Dawkins, do you think the murder of your child or any child would be nothing more than an instance of someone acting unfashionably? That's what you need to believe if you want to be a consistent atheist. You need to suppress your most basic moral intuitions because without God, there is no objective, unchanging standard of morality. According to atheism, how could it be otherwise? All of your thoughts and behaviors are merely the result of blind forces. Justice, morality, and free will don't really exist. In order to hold people morally responsible for their actions, atheists need to steal free will and morality from God. Imagine a society that did not hold people morally responsible for their actions. There would be no civilization. The moral implications of atheism is unlivable. In the last episode of this program, I ask if Kai Nielsen's and Richard Dawkins' morality was a subjective morality. Remember, this is the view that all moral judgments are expressions of the sentiments or tastes of the speaker. Thus, when a pro-life advocate maintains abortion is, is immoral, the moral subjectivist assumes that the pro-life person is not speaking objectively and chooses to understand that to be nothing more than saying something about the person's own feelings or sentiments. The moral subjectivist will likely understand the pro-life advocate as saying merely that I don't like abortion. Of course, in the context of moral subjectivism, similar things could be said about the declarations of a pro-choice advocate. One person is sharing a description of her sentiments, while the other is merely sharing a testimony regarding her opinions. According to moral subjectivism, the world no more includes moral properties like right, wrong, good, and bad, any more than words like delicious, adorable, distaste, or disgust. If moral subjectivism is true, then this reduction of moral judgments to expressions of sentiment is not limited to controversial issues like abortion. Even those bedrock moral beliefs that we considered earlier in episodes 77 and 78 are subjective to such reduction. Child molestation is wrong, and the Nazis' gassing of the Holocaust victims was a moral tragedy. Become expressions of the speaker's sentiments, and thus is understood as saying, I detest child molestation, and I'm sad when I think about the Holocaust victims. On the view of moral subjectivism, the Nazis' gassing the Holocaust victims was not strictly speaking, wrong or tragic. While it is true that nearly everyone who hears of the Holocaust is engulfed with grief, 
This does not show that the Holocaust was really, in itself, tragic or wrong. My reaction to moral subjectivism is the subtitle of the book Relativism by Francis Beckwith and Gregory Kukul. Feet firmly planted in midair. Allow me to contrast the moral cop-out of moral subjectivism with moral realism. The moral realist maintains that the world includes moral properties such as good, bad, right, wrong, virtue, and vice, in addition to, say, physical properties of things. Thus, when the moral realist says that the Nazis' gassing of the Holocaust victims was wrong, he means that the relevant actions and events have that very same property, and that they would have that same property even if everyone in the world was deluded into thinking that it was a good thing. If abortion is wrong, it is really wrong, and it will be wrong even if a whimsical American public voted overwhelmingly in favor of it. There is a real difference between being legal and being morally right. In denying such things, the moral subjectivist thus embraces a form of moral anti-realism. Both Nielsen and Dawkins think that we can have objective moral standards without God. I and others have given a moral argument that the existence of objective moral laws point to the existence of God. The moral argument's history can be traced back to the 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant. He rejected the ontological, cosmological, and teleological arguments that were in vogue in his time. Note that was prior to the scientific discovery of the Big Bang and the anthropic principle. So he would, would have had less evidence to go on to support those arguments. Kant believed that most of us find ourselves inescapably confronted with moral experience. There is no better expression of this confrontation than his statement, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe the starry heavens above me, and the moral law within me. Kant's statement suggests that the reality of moral experience can no more be doubted than the reality of the sensible experience of being out under the stars at night and seeing the heavens above. In the same way that a person can find himself in the sensate world, conditioned by objects existing independent of the person's body, he can also find himself in a moral world conditioned by an objective moral law existing independently of his own opinions or inclinations. If we ask someone to survey the starry heavens above, and he responds, what starry heavens? Then we would judge the person to be either blind, irrational, or otherwise somewhat lacking in sanity. Ravi Zacharias said to one moral subjectivist, if I were to take a young child and chop it to bits with a sword, 
In your opinion, would I have done anything wrong? The moral subjectivist replied, I wouldn't like it. I would feel it to be unpleasant, but I could not say it was wrong. Wouldn't all of us be shocked by someone who appears utterly oblivious to moral duty and responsibility? I think so. Just as the starry heavens above is a given fact of life, even so the moral law within is an inescapable fact. Charles Darwin, like Immanuel Kant, sought to explain the moral law within. In his book, The Descent of Man, Darwin wrote, as far as I know, no one has approached morality from the side of natural history. Of course, to explain the origins of morality from the side of natural history is to assume that morality is a natural phenomenon. I don't think it is. In my mind, it is a spiritual phenomenon. But Darwin would not grant me that assertion. Darwin's naturalistic explanation that morality originated in a kind of social instinct that has evolved in the species by way of natural selection. In their earliest state, humans found themselves in a harsh environment where survival was difficult. Darwin hypothesizes that because there is strength in number, any group or tribe of individuals that manage to band together and overcome their individual differences would fare better than those who went their separate ways. Individuals possessing social instincts are thus more likely to live on and pass along those heritable traits to their offspring than those lacking such instincts. That is his expectation without any evidence to go on. Darwin adds, those communities which included the greatest number of the most sympathetic members would flourish best and rear the greatest number of offspring. Over the millennia, culture would be a force in reinforcing and shaping the social instincts. If Darwin's account of the origin and nature of human morality is correct, then it is difficult to see how one could expect the moral law within to be the ground of human dignity or inherent value. In the Darwinian scheme, morality is a device of survival in social organisms, which has taken the shape that it has precisely because the circumstances of human survival and human flourishing have been just as they have been. Had those circumstances been different, perhaps an entirely different set of instincts might be the very opposite of what we now deem moral would have spread throughout the human species. In a booklet, Is Everything Permitted?, Mark Linville says, given the Darwinian account, human moral behavior and sentiment, like human pancreatic secretion, is simply nature's way of solving certain problems, given the circumstances. 
We may no more derive inherent worth from the possession of our current social instincts than we can from the possession of our respective pancreases. While I am pleased to own a pancreas, its value lies in the fact that it is a means to the end of my survival. It is another natural device. We can hardly look to some feature that is of merely instrumental or extrinsic value as the ground of our inherent or intrinsic worth. What is true of human internal organs would seem to hold with equal force for the moral law within. That is, if Darwin was correct. The problem for a Darwinian account of human morality run much deeper than this. This is because an evolutionary account of morality is essentially moral subjectivism. I will return to this point in the next episode. In the meantime, remember the words from Steve Green's song, Oh, may those that come behind us find us faithful. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith, with Joe Mott.